It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you guys this morning. I teach in other ways and do other things, but I don't often get to be up here preaching because Wayne does such a fabulous job preaching and teaching, and he just really loves doing that. So that's great. But here I am. It's, um, I'm glad to be here today that as he talked about his mother on uh, Monday already, he got the, got the message they might need to leave. So we already kind of discussed and I've been studying and thinking about the men's Bible study. We're doing the book of Colossians. We're going all through the book of Colossians. But uh, today we're going to just go look at a little bit of the book of Colossians. The guys aren't suffering by doing this. We'll, we'll catch up with it on our Monday morning time as well. But uh, this is just such a, such a great book. When we talk at seminary, back when we were studying, you know, all the question is, what would you preach first when you go to a new church? Or if you're starting a new church and planning a church, any of those things, what would be your first topic of discussion? And uh, <clears throat> my thoughts that I always wanted to do was the book of Colossians, because it's, it's so foundational to the truth of God's word, to establishing the church and what is right thinking according to scripture, and especially in the face of lies and things like that. So we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1 today. Not all of it, just a little bit. But, uh, you know, growing up, one of my favorite stories and our family's favorite stories we would listen to probably every year was Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates. We've got a little cassette tape with that on there. And you'd listen to the story of Hans skating across the ice. But that was written back in 1865. And it includes in there a story about a little Dutch boy that maybe you've all heard that uh, he's credited for saving his country from catastrophic flooding. Now, he simply plugged a dike with his finger. But I recently read an article, though, this last week that uh, used this as an excellent illustration of the lies of the world being held back by the truth of God's word and the people of God's word. So when this young boy recognized the danger, he was walking along nonchalant, not seeing anything. All of a sudden, there's this trickle of water on the ground. He's like, where did that come from? And he knew that if that one little trickle of water were allowed to come through, it would pretty, pretty rapidly erode the whole dike. And then his family, everybody up on the side would be out of luck and out of life. But uh, the story goes, quick as a flash, he saw his duty. He threw away his flowers. He clambered up the heights until he reached the hole. His chubby little finger was thrust in almost before he knew it. And the flowing was stopped. The story goes on. He was there all night long calling for help, trying to get others to come. But uh, it's very much like what might we think of today in our present world. What's to be done with the lies of the present world that spring a leak through the truth of the gospel, the truth that holds back the world's torrent of deception? You know, how are we as believers to respond when imminent danger threatens to our families, our community, and even our church? You know, the enemy is often chiseling away at the truth and trying to reveal an ever-growing fracture of deceit that's there. What are the righteous to do? Well, in the story, some would like to run for higher ground and cloister themselves away from the danger. If we just get far enough away, we'll be fine. Others thought themselves immune to the peril and even in our current culture, rushed to swim in the streams of the world, thinking they're, they're not going to get dirty, we won't get soiled only to end up drowning in the waters as the truth of compromise comes in their life. And still others, quite sincerely, don't know how to respond at all. And that's kind of what we see here in the book of Colossians, and Paul is addressing that. How do you respond to these lies of truth? Let's pray together as we begin and look at the book of Colossians. 
Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you that you have provided truth from your own spirit to us. And that as we read these things, as we hear them, as we ponder them in our hearts, that they will affect us and have a change in our lives, just as, as we see in the lives of others here in the book of Colossians. God, there's, there's so many lies around us. Help us to be discerning on what, what is truth, what is falsehood, what honors you, and what dishonors you. God, we want to serve you, and as a result of our hearing your word, we want to be changed so that others can hear those same things. God, just uh, guide us this morning as we look to your word for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So maybe you've heard some of these lies. I'm sure you have. It's all about you. Is anybody thinking that it's all about you right now? <laughs> that happens. That happens. Whether it's the clothing industry, it's how you look, how you feel, how others praise you, whether it's you know, television, it's all about you. There's not a single show that I know of. I don't know very many shows, but there's not a single show I know of that doesn't have that focus somewhere about it being all about you and being your best self, things like that. It also, that goes along the same line as, you know, righteousness isn't as important as it used to be. If it's all about you, righteousness isn't about you. Righteousness is about God. And so it's really not as important. And that's because they believe that there's no absolute truth. And if there's no absolute truth, there's no absolute righteousness. So you can, what, you can think what you want. You can do what you please. And they all just kind of flow through this whole idea of lies. That even ends up being you don't have to be committed to scripture as a Christian, because if there's no absolute truth, then what does this hold? Nothing but a bunch of stories. And so it just keeps going down that road. Even loving others isn't important. I think our culture, they would say, oh, you hater, you hater, as though they're lovers, but they're not lovers of other people. They're lovers of people who love them. Maybe it's they love the way their view on social justice. They love their view on critical race theory. They love their view on tolerance. But if you're not in their view on tolerance, they're, it's intolerable. <laughs> and suddenly you're not, you're not in the love circle anymore. Um, all these things, the lies that are going on in the world. I mean, we could be here all day. I could just keep going, but I don't quite have time for that. They, you know, the world uses these things to veil and to minimize and really destroy the truth. So we don't even need to keep going on a list. You know, you could make one thing on the list and that would be it. Satan used the same lie from the very beginning that is still being used now. In Genesis, he asked Eve, did God actually say? He bases his argument on what is truth and puts that seed in their mind. Oh, there's, maybe it's, it's not true. Maybe God didn't say that. That reminds me of Ecclesiastes 1.9. We were actually talking about this at the table, arguing whether it was Ecclesiastes 1.9 or Ecclesiastes 2.15. But I, I had it written down here already, so I knew the answer. But... Uh, <laughs> What, it says what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. That can be very encouraging. It can also be very uh, depressing. Wow, there's nothing new. These things have been going on for all this time, and it's still the same. And yet, yes, this, the sinfulness of man ever since the fall of Adam is here and expressed in this world, and we see it trying to chip away. Did God really say that. So whatever the message, whatever the cultural demands or experience today, they're nothing new. They're nothing changed. It's just been re-gifted. I love that word. <laughs> we do a lot of re-gifting. And uh, this thing has been re-gifted, so to speak. 
And each generation looks on with eager hands. Give me, give me that. I want that sin. I'd love to do that and be involved with it. And they think it's, you know, the same lie that's being handed down from of old and hoping it's a new thing once they open the box, and it's not. Well, today's message from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. I think the bulletin says 1 through 10. They got printed a little early. I called Wayne the next day, and he's like, already done. Too bad. <laughs> but uh, through verse 12 is where we're going to be going. But it's written to this church who didn't know how to respond to the lies that were swirling around their city. And even if they had an answer, Paul's encouragement bolsters their resolve to stand firm. And it reminds them of who they are in Christ and who they represent as his followers. Paul, the writer of this letter, or the epistle, he's gotten wind of the lies being whipped up around the, and proffered to these believers saying, you know, this is truth, this is truth. But... While there wasn't yet a leak in the church, he knew that it was at the bursting point. It was there, and uh, the feeling was coming. And if you've read Paul ever in the New Testament, you would know that he knows about false teachers, and he warns about them in almost every one of his books that he's written, except for maybe Philemon. He doesn't read, that's, that's the only one that doesn't talk about false teachers. But in fact, if you read the entire story of the New Testament, it rings with a constant alarm about those who are perverting the truth, and going from the way of truth instead of following Christ. Now, if we were to read the full letter this morning, we would see Paul respond to each of the lies that were brought against the Colossians. They call it the Colossian heresy or false teaching. There were, they would say that Jesus alone wasn't sufficient. You needed Jesus, but also you needed some superior knowledge. You needed more. Nothing that's written here, something that only the little group knew and it was this, the start of a whole movement of Gnosticism, having this superior knowledge about God outside of his revelation. And also, they had this idea of deism, that God is good, but all of matter is bad. So as a result, they denied the deity of Christ, they denied the humanity of Christ, they denied the salvation that was in Christ just by that one belief. The, the false teachers, were they were mixing the Greek ideas about this new knowledge with Jewish ideas of the rules and regulations of Judaism, the meeting on the Sabbath and festival days, new moon. And they're like, why aren't you doing this? But Paul doesn't address that all at once. He establishes what matters in their lives. And that's the truth that they've already heard. And uh, we're going to read this here in Colossians 1, 1 through 12. Follow along with me as we see what is happening in this church and Paul's response to it and their response to it as well. So verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV in case yours is different. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from this day, from the day we heard, 
we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in his inheritance of the saints in light. Your Bible may have a different breaking point right there, but uh, the original Greek doesn't have any, any of our punctuation and things like that. And I wanted to end there, and we'll find out at the end of the uh, message why we end there, but it's a, a good capstone to what Paul starts with in the beginning of the book. Where is the source of truth? As you read through that, where is, where is truth found? And what are the results of hearing truth? Those first words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's so important to see both who Paul was and who Paul is now. We read in Galatians 1, and you, you see a whole outline of Paul and his just commitment to anything but Christianity, commitment to those things outside of the truth about God. But the example God created through Saul, now Paul, is helpful in our understanding of God and the very message that he's even giving to the Colossian church here as he penned in this book. You know, we know of Paul as the greatest missionary. If you look in your Bible, they have maps a lot of times, missionary journeys. Whose missionary journeys are those? Only Paul's. Paul's three missionary journeys. And it shows how he went and he planted churches all over. If you look at the New Testament and read through, he, there's at least 14 churches he directly planted. That's a lot for one, one person. These days, if you have one person plant one church in a lifetime, it, it feels like a lot. But Paul, 14 churches, that's a remarkable thing. And the church in Ephesus that he planted, that church went on to plant more churches until at the end of uh, the book of Acts, we hear that all of Asia has heard the gospel and have heard about the good news of God's salvation from sin through death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Wow. Those are just great words that Paul is preaching and then those are being repeated and preached everywhere as a result of his work. You know, when Paul left the earth at his appointed time, he not only left church plants, but he really left the DNA of what the church should look like, the whole plan of how the movement that would eventually spread across all of the Roman Empire, how that should function and look. History was changed in a dramatic fashion through this one man's obedience. Now at the same time when you talk about that one man in the Bible, who despised Gentiles, who hated unclean things, hated anything outside of Judaism, that pre-Christ Paul is your man. He's both so changed by God and yet was that person before God did his work in him. In our human eyes, it's really ironic that this would be the guy God would choose to reach the Gentile world of all people, this guy who was so stubborn, who was a murderer and killer and you know, promoted all those things. And yet here he is, by the mercy of God, through the grace of God, by the will of God. Here's a man that's, that's changed completely in what he's doing. And he's not just changed by cultural things. He's changed by truth, the truth about God. And now he rejoices in the truth and he even dies for the truth that he is preaching. It continues, though. It's not just Paul who's here as he's writing the letter. He has his friend, his faithful friend with him, Timothy. Timothy, our brother, no one served Paul as faithfully as Timothy in the spread of the gospel. You'll see Timothy's name on five other letters that Paul's written, even letters written to Timothy as he's proclaiming the word at the church in Ephesus. 
But this is the man who's writing this letter, one chosen by God to uphold the truth, having Christ take first place in everything that he's teaching instead of his traditions, the world, the lies around him. And he shares that with others. Here's Timothy. He says, our brother, someone who's on the same standing as Paul. And he uses even that little pronoun, our. Such a small little word, but it, it changes the whole aspect of it. When we look through the book of Acts, we would see it change from I, 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 to we. When Luke was involved, it was we, or you see they. Those little pronoun changes make such a dramatic effect. God's the one who inspires his word through the apostles and uses Paul to write these things. So every one of the words matters and is useful for what Paul is trying to convey. The word our there, again, is bringing his recipients, the people of Colossae, and now us, 2,000 years later, into the same idea. We are brothers and sisters together in this. We talked about church membership this morning in our new member class, and I was trying to not overlap too much, but there's a lot here in Colossians that overlaps with that wonderfully. But in the New Testament, we don't see new membership talked about as it is in the Bible specifically. But we know that there is a place that Paul addressed to each of his letters. It includes specific people, a known group of people, and it's believers who are submitted to one another. It's interesting that this letter is also supposed to be passed along to another church. If you were to jump all the way to the end of Colossians, it says, pass this on to the church in Laodicea and also read their letter that I sent to them, it's for you. And so it's to the church, a very specific recipient. And that's what we see in verse two. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. These people are described as saints, as faithful brothers in Christ, in Colossae. It's so specific who the people, recipients of the letter are for. But, you know, due to the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, we mentioned this earlier as well, you know, saints has been given a different definition of what Paul is actually referring to. Jack Morrison and I were talking about saints a, f a few months back because it, there, we, we were in Spain for a few years, they have a saint for every holiday, they have a saint for every month, every person has a patron saint, which they, they pray to as their mediator to God or between them and Mary even, and then God, Mary is their next one to God. That is not what saints is in the New Testament at all. It's actually this word hagios. If you were to, to read through your Bible and just do a search on the, on the singular hagios, it means holy, holy, set apart, just like God says, you are to be holy as I am holy. It uses that word hagios. And here we have the hagios, the plural of that, the holy ones, set apart ones, set apart by God and for God. These are believers. They're not just any old... Tom, Dick, and Mary that are in the town, they are believers that God has called. So the specific group of people and all those who fit that description just made, they're also faithful brothers and sisters. They have the same standing as Paul and Timothy and now themselves. What a, what a great thought as he starts this. And we're just barely getting going, but there's so much in these just few verses that establish the unity that Paul wants to show to the church that it's not just him in prison with his, uh, the few people that are with him. It's not just some of these other churches that are planted, but here's this church in Colossae. Paul's never seen the people. They don't know him, and yet he can encourage them that they are, they're of the same group of him as believers in their local church. To turn from sin to uh, the living and true God, 
It's never a lone wolf endeavor. God establishes church in each locale that the holy ones there, the hagios, the ones that are set apart, they submit to each other under the truth of God's word. And that's how he kind of finishes that out in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's a unity under what God the Father has done. He has given grace, the salvation to them. He is the one who has brought them into peace with him when they were rebels against him. And it's again the unity of the, the church, the unity of believers in that place. Verse 3 is a little bit of a transition. It changes from Paul just greeting them to now sharing his thoughts about what he's thinking when he hears about them. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Wow, how beautiful is that sentence? Like I said, here's a man who's never seen them. They haven't met him at all. And yet they know he's a faithful church leader and he's praying for them. He's thanking God on their behalf. Wow, that is incredible. Not only that, he's once again reaffirming that they're worshiping the same God and Father and Lord and part of the same spiritual family. And they've been set apart for God's work. He wants to keep encouraging that. Don't overlook that significance of that here as Paul uncovers his thoughts in this prayer. Now, some of you know my story. Some of you don't. So we've got a lot of newer people in the last couple of years. And when I was 17, I remember hearing from people that I never knew telling me that they were praying for me. They were concerned for me after I recovered from a little ski accident. I had a slight crushing of my skull and a coma and a month of sleeping. But to hear these men and women that I have never seen older men and women that were caring for little old me in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. I mean, who knows about Kansas? Some of us do now, but, <laughs> but uh, that was really a huge encouragement for my faith and a point in time where I saw that I'm not just involved with myself in my little place in Kansas. I'm involved in the lives of others, and they're involved in my life. It's really an eye-opener to the love found in the larger family of believers, of saints, and their commitment to the same God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great reminder to think on those things. And Paul is doing that for these people. And Paul's thanksgiving wasn't for the recovery from some trauma. No, it was actually something much, much greater. It was praying for them because of their response to hearing the truth and being obedient to what they heard. Verses 4 and 5 tells us about that. It says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints... Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Hearing the word of truth led to a change in thinking, a care for people, and an expectation of eternity, as we see in these words, faith, love, and hope. You may have heard those in some other, other verses in the Bible, maybe in a little different order, but they're expressed here as well. What God's word and his truth does as brings out faith, love, and hope. And the other verse says, and the greatest of these is love. But we'll get to that in a moment. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's amazing that these people heard the gospel and they put their faith in that. Faith in Hebrews 11, it says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. They're thinking differently about Jesus Christ. People that are hostile to him are now praising him. They have assurance and conviction and belief in the Lord who they cannot see, they have faith. And that faith leads to them to care for others that are like-minded, that have that same faith. It's become love for those who love Christ. What a, what a great change. 
It's much different than the disdain both Jews and the Greeks had for one another and that each of those groups had for Christians. They, boy, they hated everybody named a Christian. And here, after the work of God in their lives, they love one another. They're serving one another. There's no longer division, but unity through that common Savior. You know, just after Judas left to be betray the Lord in, uh, what is it, John 13, he, Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. And they will know that you are my disciples by this, that you love one another. Wow, the Colossians were actively obeying the Lord's command to love one another. This love was expressed in, in a way that others, here Paul and Timothy, they even knew that they were true brothers in the Lord because they were loving one another. What, a, what an incredible change in their life from hearing the simple truth. You know, in verse 5, we also see hope. Hope. Hope in Scripture, it's, it's that confident expectation of what is to come for the future. We get all riled up looking at the news. It's like, man, is there really any hope? But as believers, we look beyond the news. We look beyond what today is bringing, what tomorrow is bringing, and look to what God is bringing in the future. Here it says their hope is laid up for you in heaven, and they're looking toward that as believers, looking to that future hope. And when grounded in God, that hope provides motivation for believers, motivation to live a Christian life, even in those face of struggles, even when those things come upon us. Now, where did this hope come from? Where did that faith and love come from? If you see there in verse 5, it's from hearing the word of truth, the gospel. I think it says that again. You have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel. What a, a word we've, we hear sometimes and wonder, what, is, what does that mean? What is the gospel? It's used all throughout the New Testament, really a, a technical term, specifically talking about the work of God. But Acts 20 calls it the gospel of the grace of God. Romans 1.9 says the gospel of his son. 1 Corinthians, Paul says the gospel of Christ. And he's, as he tells the church in Rome, it's the gospel of God. Again, he's talking to the Corinthians, it's the gospel of the glory of Christ or the gospel of peace. And at the end of Revelation, we see it as the eternal gospel. But here it's also described as the word of truth. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, it's gospel truth? Yeah, yeah, that comes on. You know, that comes from right here in Colossians, the gospel truth. People use that phrase everywhere where they want to know your sincerity. You're, you're trying to say something that they, they want you to believe, the undeniable truth. You know, Disney back in 1997 made a little uh, animated movie called Hercules. And uh, the, the theme song for that is called The Gospel Truth. It's kind of funny, cute little song, little ditty. And uh, it talks about Greek mythology, how the world was tamed by Zeus, how lightning bolts captured the Titans. And the closing line of every verse is, and that's the gospel truth. And that's the gospel truth. Someone knows that song, I think, here. <laughs> so the writers of that piece, they want to make sure that you know that this is what went down. This is how the world started. It's based on Greek mythology. So it's really, it's just uh, made up funny stuff. But that's the gospel truth. It's all just made up and, and not true. Last year, BBC News used this, the gospel truth, in uh, the middle of the COVID things on a piece talking about the COVID-19 vaccines and their push toward universal vaccination. They said it's the gospel truth because it that has that idea and has that effect on us. As we hear the gospel truth, we expect it to be true. And although 
we often use that flippantly and, uh, you know, to get a following or something. There actually is real gospel truth. It may not be these other things that the world is showing, but there's real gospel truth, undeniable truth. And there in verse 5, you see what that is. The gospel is undeniable truth. The gospel itself is undeniable truth. And that's what Paul asserts here. This gospel is the source that changed their lives. Objective truth, undeniable truth, is not established by our own feelings. It's not something the culture says. It's not our ideas, but it's the word of God, his gospel. You know, that, that word gospel in the Greek actually means good news, as you translate it across. And it was used in the Bible time to speak of the good news of a victory, a victory over a battle. And the gospel is that good news of Jesus' victory over sin and death and over Satan. And it's also the good news that we can have that same victory eternally over those enemies through him. What an incredible, incredible joy to think of the gospel. Paul mentioned the gospel briefly summarized in 1 Corinthians, telling yet another church what this gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Oh, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died to provide complete forgiveness of sins, and that he rose again, that we might, those who believe in him would live with him forever. That's the hope that they had. That's the faith that they had. The love that was developed was out of that. The gospel came to the saints in Colossae, and actually, wherever it was heard, it was bearing fruit and increasing. Verse 6 says, after they heard the gospel, as indeed the whole you and the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul says, hear that they didn't just hear the gospel. It's, and it's not just, didn't just bear fruit at one time. It's continually bearing fruit and increasing. The growth in the gospel isn't that one-time occurrence. It's not fire insurance. It's not a get out of hell free card. No, it's none of those things. It's constantly, continually working to replenish our faith, our love, our hope in God, drawing us deeper into a more steadfast relationship with the Lord. That's what he says at the end there. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, you're continuing to grow toward God as a result of the truth that you've heard. So the gospel truth, it's received by faith. We see, we see it that it results in love and it rests in hope. Faith and hope are inseparably linked. They, we believe and so we hope. And the Colossians did that same thing. Now, if you've been here at Act in Faith for any given time, whether it's one day or multiple days. The gospel's been proclaimed. We went through the book of Acts, and it was proclaimed over and over again. We've discussed it in Bible studies because the gospel's always at the core of what we're doing. We've talked about it in discipling, but we could always be talking about it more. The good, needs, good news needs to be heard. It needs to be proclaimed so that we're refreshed in our faith, so that we're strengthened in our love for one another, and we're reminded of that hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, verse 7 continues 
how they have heard it, how they've responded, and just the fact of how the gospel is working, that what they heard, it wasn't just another bunch of lies, but it was accurately proclaimed by Epaphras. In verse 7, it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow minister, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Here's another example of the great work of the gospel in a sinner's life. From this verse, we learn that this man, Epaphras, was the one who came and proclaimed the good news to Colossae. Not Paul, not one of the greats you might think of that is doing church planting, but here is a faithful servant of the word of God, a faithful brother in Christ who proclaimed the good news accurately to the people of Colossae. His life in Christ and commitment to truth, they're really on par with Paul. As Paul even calls this man a beloved fellow servant, just the same as what Paul was doing committed to the Christ and his, his message, and he's a faithful minister. All of this rooted in Christ for the sake of this young church. That is, that is so neat. Men and women, do we talk about each other with such love and compassion? Do we talk about beloved fellow servant? I mean, as I think on these things, uh, I probably need to change my vocabulary every now and again when it comes to talking about one another. But uh, Paul so graciously chooses his words here. Just as he wrote to the Ephesians, he says, let no corrupting mouth come of, come, no, no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This grace is even that idea of salvation, a reminder of the gospel, what God has done. And uh, here Epaphras did that. Paul did that. The, the, the Colossians were doing that amongst each other the love they showed for one another. Well, <clears throat> after commending and examining the Colossians and their response to truth, Paul can do nothing better than to fall before the Lord in unceasing prayer. And that's what the next verse comes to. Each time the news of the gospel was heard, was heard it had some sort of a response, either re the reception by the church or the results told to others. It should well up in that desire to pray Verse 3 and verse 9 are really kind of bookends to the wonderful salvation God expressed to the Colossians. You see that Paul had heard about their faith, and so he prayed. And now he hears about their response, and so he prays. Hearing the gospel is an impetus to pray. It's praying together as we do in the morning. Wonderful. That should be our response to the gospel. Are we praying? And it's, Paul lived his life constantly in view of his relationship with God, and, and so he prayed. And he also lived it, though, in view of his relationship to the church. And so he prayed for them and directed them in prayer. Verse 9 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I was talking to my dad a couple of days ago, and uh, we always talk back and forth about what we're studying or teaching, something like that. It's really it's really encouraging along these lines and he's like this verse here if you ever don't know what to pray for someone this is what you pray it's a universal prayer for anyone who's a believer who anyone following God that since we've heard about them that we may not cease to pray for him that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will that's God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding Paul was also aware of these believers and their need and it never fails. He knew that false teachers were coming and they needed something else to stand on besides the untruth of the world. They needed to stand on God's truth that was proclaimed and received by them. 
And Paul also knows that they need God's unsustain, his sustaining hand in bearing fruit and growing. You know, the spiritual milk that led to their salvation, it wasn't enough to sustain the believer as they grow. They needed more. They needed to become mature, as verse 9 ended, with filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's looking at maturity. You know, this wisdom that comes, it's from God's Spirit illuminating the believer's heart to understand and apply God's Word. It wasn't just that specific knowledge, that extra knowledge that the, the people were telling them to do. No, it was the knowledge of God's Word by the Holy Spirit. It's really in sharp contrast to the lives of the world that are offered so eagerly to those outside the church. This is truth. This is truth. If you just do this, if you just do this, you're going to live forever. If you take these five things, no, that's not the truth that is looking for. God uses those things to help us and encourage our health, yes, but uh, that's not where the truth is found. It's found here in God's wisdom and understanding. This wisdom that God uses leads us to maturity, spiritual maturity. And it's spiritual Maturity limited to the Pauls and Timothy and Epaphras of this world? I see the answer. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not limited to them. He doesn't expect it to be limited to, you know, one person and then all the rest just feed on milk the rest of the time. No, that's not the idea. There's not one king sitting in the front eating the feast while the rest suffer. No, everybody is growing up in maturity. You know, the world would like to say what maturity looks like. I don't know if you've watched anyone on YouTube. I'm assuming you have. As from, from young to old, people are on YouTube, it seems like. But we get this idea that, oh, wow, look at that YouTube evangelist. He must be mature. He's got a lot of likes. They have their own channel. There's thousands, if not millions, of people following. It must be maturity that's bringing this about. Or maybe a modern worship group. Oh, man, they, they started over 30 churches. They have 150,000 members meeting every week. That is, oh, that's, that's so maturity. They're so mature. They must be doing something right. But if our idea of maturity is based on social likes and numbers, then we're really looking at the wrong measuring rod altogether. Paul gives the proper standard for maturity in verse 10. He says, God gives us wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Our understanding and application of the word of God engulfs our life and directs our steps according to his ways. You know, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Our thoughts, our intentions, our actions are supposed to be fully pleasing to him. You know, the word walk, Paul uses here nearly 50 times in his other letters, he talks about it as well. When we went on our hike, um, John Sisko brought it up as uh, from Ephesians because God uses that too. Walk in the light. Walk appropriately, not as the Gentiles did, but now as your followers of Christ. Walking, to always talking about the believer's way of life. It's not just about how you step. Do you drag your foot? Do you hop along? No, none of those things. It's all about your life. How do you live? What you choose what you prioritize, what you strive for. That's all about this walk of life. And then questioning, is it pleasing to the Lord? We can, we can know that pretty fast if it's pleasing to the Lord by looking at his word, the truth that we have in front of us, by looking at the right criteria for maturity in his word. And as we look at the Colossians, their example, do others tell of God's work because of you? Others told of their work and the work that God was doing in their lives 
as they shared it with the, the greater body of Christ? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Is it encouraging the church? Is it being told of, are you, those outside the church, hearing the truth that you received? Can you see the fruit in every good work? As it says there in verse 10, 10. Is God really <laughs> increasing your knowledge? Is your knowledge intentionally being increased by your study of him, seeing God work, being developed into a loving relationship with your Savior? That's the last part of that. Increasing in the knowledge of God isn't just growing in the number of facts and figures we know about God. He's talked about that earlier, his knowledge in verse 9, that we're, we're growing in our knowledge. And there we think of it as the, the information we know, what we really know about God. And here we're increasing the knowledge is our relationship with him. We see the word know, know as a relationship term all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's knowing personally in a relational way based on the information you know, but it builds that relationship into a loving relationship with the Savior and not just a head full of knowledge that you keep to spout out at other people, not in a way of love, but in a way of pride. But Paul longed for these people to be changed by the truth so that every aspect of their life, their, their mouth, their steps, their activities, their church, the people around them would be affected by the word of God. And he longed for God to do that work. In verse 11, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. The ability, the power to walk in such a manner, it can only come from God. It's not from our own hands. It comes from the truth of his word revealed by the work of his spirit. So the book of Colossians, it starts with Paul being qualified by the will of God. And this section that we just looked at ends with the saints being qualified by the will of God. That's why we stop there. The qualifications for both of them is what God has done and what God is doing in their lives. Paul incredible seeing his past in Galatians seeing what he's doing now for the church the Colossians the same thing they were opposed to God and now they are proclaiming the truth of God God's work of regeneration this idea of new birth of changing from death to life from darkness to light wow it was having its effect on many who heard God's word and they responded in faith. Now they're called saints. They're called children of God with an eternal hope. I keep discovering that a simple obedience is such a powerful thing in one's life. They heard and they obeyed. We don't, they could go all through the complaints that they have, the opposition, the skepticism, but that's not what God chose to share in his word. These people heard the word and it changed their lives as a result of his spirit. You know, more powerful than specific talents or personalities. Sometimes, like we say, we base our YouTube, how charismatic are they? How great do they do these things? How wonderful? And that's, that's where it's at. But more than those talents, more than those abilities or personalities, and certainly more powerful than any program or strategy. In a day where we Christians have a lot of education, we're almost unable to obey as much as we know. And I find that we need more not more education, but more obedience, simple obedience to the things we know. And Paul knew that here as he talks to the Colossians. He's not telling them anything they didn't know. He's just reminding them of what they already knew, what they'd already heard about the gospel with a call to continued obedience. 
if you look in your bulletin, I don't, we don't normally have a little uh, note thing, but on the back of the sufficiency of scripture um, page, there's some little notes down here. And uh, Dan might put them up on the, I didn't talk to Dan ahead of time, but <laughs> they, it's there. It looks like it's ready. Oh, no. Okay. But we're going to talk through these. These are, as we think about what the Colossians heard, think about what you've heard this morning in light of these things. I left it blank just so you have to follow along. That's the main goal for that. You, but you could fill them in ahead of time, too. I always did when I, was, when I would do these things. But questions, as you hear God's word, is the truth of the gospel working in your life for salvation? There's lots of ways... Th- this book could be applied. As you're reading through it, God can be convicting. I just brought out a few that I was, I was thinking of from uh, the passages as we talked. Is the truth of the gospel working in your life for salvation? Secondly, has your hearing of the gospel led to faith in God? Man, who he is and who, what he has accomplished through Christ for our sin and rebellion against him? Is this faith expressed in our overwhelming love for fellow brothers and sisters, for whom Christ died. That's what the Colossians knew. Christ died for them, and they loved one another because Christ died for their brothers and sisters as well. On that same page, he didn't just die for for me or for Paul or Epaphras. He died for the church, those who God had set apart. (coughs) Has your hearing put an eternal hope in your hearts for the reward God has reserved for you in heaven? That's a great hope to look on that. First Peter talks all about that, about the, that imperishable hope that we're looking forward to, that God has reserved in heaven for you. Has it put that eternal hope in there? Hopefully that hope can overshadow those worries of the day as we look forward to eternity. Living in view of eternity is what the idea is there. Next, is the gospel truth bearing fruit and growing in your life and extending to others. John 15, Jesus said to the uh, disciples, My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Yet another proof of your discipleship of God, the love that he's showing you, the faith that you have for him, and the bearing of fruit, that you are growing and increasing. If you were to read more in that passage, the, the parts of the vine that don't bear fruit, they're actually they're cut off and thrown out, and not part of the vine, which is Christ. Do you understand God's grace, his unmerited favor, when you hear his word? And lastly, when others hear of you, does it show your love in the Spirit, a like-mindedness in the things of God? Does it show your love in the Spirit? To think of this young church here, someone who had heard the truth of the gospel and believed it, Epaphras, then went and proclaimed the same thing to them. And the the church was formed and believed. And Paul even heard about it away at Rome. I was going to put a little map up here to show where Colossae is, but it's it's not overly important. It's in the area that Paul preached in. So that, (laughs) that pretty much covers it. But it's not any town that he ever went to. And yet, here's Paul in Rome, in prison, hearing about the wonderful things that God has done in their life. Hopefully that's what's happening with our community in Acton. Hopefully that it continues to do that more as we come out of COVID, as people are 
interacting at spaces less than six feet apart, as uh, we, able, we can see one another's face and express love through our smiles and through our expressions that have been hidden for so long. As we think on what you have heard, as you consider this, let's look to how we walk, that we are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that you have established truth, that you continue to uphold truth, that you protect the truth through your church. God, help us to be those that, that stand in the way of falsehood coming in, that are able to block those things, even in our own hearts and minds. But we know it's only through your power that those things are possible, through your spirit working in us, through your power changing us as we respond. God, thank you that you've been doing that over and over again throughout the centuries and you continue to do it today, that we can be brothers and sisters with Paul and Epaphras and Timothy. We can be brothers and sisters with those right here in our own church body. God, help us to serve and to love and to look at our lives in faith with an eternal hope, always looking to what you have for us in eternity. Lord, thank you for your word, the truth that is established, that is undeniable, that is the gospel truth. In Jesus' name, amen.